This episode of Breaking Brave is brought to you by Soul Snacks. Soul Snacks are single ingredient, eco-conscious dog and cat treats sourced directly from farms in Ontario and wrapped in fully compostable packaging. Treating your pets never felt so good. Use coupon code BREAKINGBRAVE for 15% off on soulsnacks.ca. That's soulsnacks.ca. This episode is also brought to you by Crank Coffee, the newest member of the Neal Brothers family. Crank Coffee is a new Canadian whole bean coffee brand that is certified organic and fair trade, founded by the Neal Brothers, Peter and Chris. This brand was influenced by cycling, coffee lovers, and experts. Check it out at the Neal Brothers online shop and use our coupon code BRAVE for 20% off your first Crank Coffee purchase. Enjoy. Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. Katie Boland is an incredibly brave, talented, and creative force of nature. She's an award-winning director, actor, screenwriter, and author. But to me, those are not the things that make her so unforgettable. It's her openness about her vulnerabilities, her journey to recovery, and her compulsion to share with the world what she has learned through her mistakes. Please welcome the indomitable Katie Boland. So I am overwhelmed and honored to have Katie Boland on Breaking Brave today. Katie is a multiple award-winning director, a screenwriter, an actress, and an author. Welcome to Breaking Brave, Katie Bolin. (laughs) Thank you so, so much for having me. I couldn't be happier to be here. Let's put some background to you. You are the daughter of an award-winning journalist, Kevin Boland, and your mama is a film producer, photographer, Gail Harvey, And you have a grandfather who was a country musician, Larry Harvey, and and an uncle who made a film about your grandfather named Shane Harvey, and you grew up in the beach. Let's start there. Can you just, just put the family dynamic together for me, maybe? Wow, you've really done your research. Um, Yeah, so I grew up in the beaches in the east end of Toronto, and I was extremely lucky to be born into a very creative family. So it was never considered strange to want to be an artist or to pursue your passions. So to be honest, it didn't take an incredible amount of bravery for me to decide at age eight that I wanted to be an actress because I came from a group of very eccentric, eclectic, creative adults that was really the community that I was that I was raised within. That's cool. And your favorite restaurant on the beach is called Goof. Yes. So the Goof is a dime. Wow, you really did amazing research. Only because Marilyn. it was a favorite restaurant. And I was like, okay, I want to hear about the Mugu Guy Pan. Yeah, I'm 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 very impressed. So the Goof is a diner on the corner of the street that I grew up on. And it's where I spent a lot of time as a child eating meals with my parents. Um, Often my father and I will go alone. And that's when my dad and I have the most enlightening conversations. He's an incredibly talented 
writer. Uh, and he spoke a lot to me as I, grow, as I was growing up about how to want to create lives outside of your own and to have an imagination that makes you want to live so much outside of your own reality in your head means that you have some difficulty living in the world. And that was always something that really stuck with me and I think informed my decision to become a writer later in life. Wow. I wish my dad had had those kind of conversations with me. It sounds like that just felt to me as if that was something you so absorbed and looked forward to and just loved having those type of conversations with your dad. Yes, my parents always spoke to me like I was an adult, and I do believe I was a precocious child, but I think because they were able to have deep conversations with me or they chose to, the world really felt like a less intimidating place than it may have. Wow, that's great. So you get an agent when you're eight. You convince your mom, Gail Harvey, I really need an agent. And so what happens? We've got an agent. Do you you put a book together with shots, pictures of yourself? And then what happens? So I rem- actually remember this meeting vividly. So my mom did not want me to get an agent. She she was in the film industry. She was a filmmaker herself at that time, and she still is, and she's very successful. But she felt the film industry was not a good place for children. And now, the age that I am, <laughs> thinking one day maybe I'll have children, I agree. <laughs> but um, I remember that meeting vividly and that I wore like a business jacket and lipstick at the age of eight. And I just thought like, this is the way, this will be the way to really impress this woman. I had headshots taken. My mom was was a photographer. So she took headshots of me. And I think, you know, there's, I think to every good part of your personality, there's a bad part of your personality. A good part of my personality is that I'm very driven. A bad part is that I don't often take no for an answer. So I think even from that age, I was I was quite determined. I I don't think that's a bad part. Thank you for I, saying I, that. I, no, I honestly don't think that's a bad part. I think that's a brave part. So good for you, power suit at eight years old. I'm impressed. I'm just envisioning kind of a mini- you, if you will, with the little lipstick on and everything. And so how did the meeting go? I remember it went well. And the whole experience was very thrilling to me because I got to feel sort of like a little adult. And I was pursuing what was my my dream at that time. And my dream has since changed. Um, but the meeting went well. And because I had my mother as my guide and I had very savvy parents. I really wasn't taken advantage of as a child actor. And for me, it was a great experience overall. Great. Fantastic. So your dream has changed, you just mentioned. So what was the dream when you were going in with your power suit, having your first meeting with your agent at eight years old to essentially now? So how how has that dream evolved So I think when I was a child and growing up into my teen years and even into my early 20s, I had I worked a lot as an actress and I thought that's what I wanted my life to be. And then I started working less, I would say, in my, let's say, early-ish, mid-20s. And I realized that to as an actress, you really have no agency or control in your life. So I decided then that I wanted to pivot into writing and then thereafter as a director. And I have to say, if I look back on my life and I decide, you know, thinking about this podcast in preparation, what, 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 what was brave that I had done? And I think 
turning away from a career that I had built that was going relatively well and deciding that I was going to embark on two very different careers, of which I had no practical skills for, just (laughs) determination and the feeling that I wanted more for my life. I wanted more power. I wanted, I wanted some control in the shape that my life was going to take. Um, I think that that took some bravery. And currently I'm directing um, my first episode of television and every day still, even though I've been directing for five years, I don't have a formal background in film school. Every day I have to show up on that set and be brave and know that I'm going to feel at times in over my head. That's hugely brave because what I understood, and I'm not sure where in the notes it is, you actually, under your belt, you've got 85 roles or is it larger than that? Is that number bigger than 85 now when you were an actress? Yeah, I would say, let's say approximately 85, 90. And I do still act sometimes, but it is not my focus or I guess my, it doesn't feel like it's my passion as much anymore. Let's talk about your then- directorial debut, We're All In This Together. I'd like to speak about that film. So you adapted it from a novel. Am I right with that? Yes, I adapted Amy Jones's best-selling novel of the same name. And she's a she's an incredible writer. And I just loved her book when I read it. And I also saw a pretty practical path to financing it. Um, so I went after that and offered her a really paltry sum of money and she accepted. So then I was given the rights to adapt the novel. Wow. Fantastic. And, and how did you, and this book come together? How did you, how did you meet? I mean, how did you know about, find or encounter the book? I had been for a very long time in my mind. I knew that to be taken seriously as a screenwriter for a feature film, It was the best idea was to adapt something that already existed and that had already had some success because it wasn't then just my idea. It was an idea that had already been proven in the marketplace. So I spoke to, so I I wrote a book and I spoke to my agent, my literary agent who helped me sell that book. And I said, do you have anything that I could star in and direct and that you think would be a relatively inexpensive adaptation. He was like, I do, but here's the crazy part. You'll have to play twins. And almost as soon as he said that, I thought that idea is so insane. I can't get it out of my head. And to to pursue that as my first film, I also, it took either complete insanity or some bravery because I would talk to people about this being my first film and this is what I was going to do. And people would laugh at my face because the idea, because even just to say all of the things that I was trying to do for my first feature film, it does sound ridiculous. (laughs) So I had to deal with that reaction and decide in my heart, no, I still think I could do it. I love the fact that that huge challenge, yes, it's here, but you're going to have to play twins. Seemed like the universe was delivering to you, Katie, a little bit of exactly what you needed or wanted or were best suited to portray. If I understand, and I've watched all the trailers, et cetera, but Finn and Nikki are the twins. And you have said publicly that Nikki was how you were when you'd just gotten sober. And Finn is the other side of that. Yes. Who I was when I was still drinking. Yes. Right. 
So just for the audience, what's this about? So just before I start jumping in and talking about Finn and Nikki, let's let's step back a bit so that the world understands what's the story about if they haven't read the book or seen the film? Yes. So the story is about the Parker family, who is a dysfunctional, multi-generational family. The matriarch of the family hurls herself over waterfalls in a barrel, and the family has to come together and do something that they never thought possible, which is act like a real family after the mother's feet goes viral and garners national attention for their family that has many um, fractures in it. And... I say the universe delivers because there was some lineage, there was some ties for you in terms of this particular film, right? In terms of your grandma suffered from bipolar, but back then, quote unquote, nobody really knew what that was. Nobody talked about what was involved or treatment. So how did that come together for you in terms of this particular film being very close to your heart, I think, or experience or both? Yes. So like you, Marilyn, I'm a big believer in the universe and that things get sent to you at the right time and things, whether that's a work of art that you're meant to adapt or a person who's meant to come into your life, I really believe in the timing of your life. Um, But when I read this book, I definitely had a lot of personal experience with mental illness within my family and also my own struggles with my own mental health. Uh, So I felt authentically that this was a story I could tell and something that I could adapt. And I actually dedicate the film to my grandmother because the film has a character who is bipolar. And as you mentioned, my grandmother had bipolar, but she didn't look at it like something that she suffered from. She looked at it like something that she lived with. And she was very forward thinking and she was very honest always about what she was going through and what her diagnosis was. And she was a real heroine in my life. And when I knew her, she was properly medicated and she was the most lovely woman in the world as people with mental illness, you know, always are. And so she dealt with it openly and honestly with your family. So that must have been something wonderful for you. It definitely set the table so that when I grew up and faced, you know, issues with anxiety or depression or other members in my family, uh, maybe were struggling, we had an open communication and dialogue about it. And also we understood the realities of our genes, which is that there was a lot of creativity, there was a ton of talent, there was mental illness, and there was alcoholism. So all of those things are braided together in my family. And could we talk about that a little bit, Katie, in terms of your sobriety? Are you two and a half years sober now? Am I, am I, am I ish? I'm just over three now. Okay. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, truly the bravest thing that I've done in my life. And I think the bravest thing that anyone who has a a drinking problem or who identifies as an alcoholic or who is an addict, the bravest thing that you can do is to quit drinking or to quit your drug of choice, because it means that you have to take life on life's terms and you have to look very deeply and very honestly, one, at your behavior, and two, at all of the reasons why you wanted to numb yourself from the world. Um, So I could not have made my film if I had not gotten sober a year before, because my film was such an undertaking that I had to have the confidence in myself that I could have done something very difficult already. 
So that, so I see them almost as like a, a graduated step in my, my life or my life story. There were a couple of quotes that spoke to me so deeply. When you're under a wave, you can't also be on it. Meaning, you know, this David Carr, I think, was quoted and you were, you were talking about that uh, in terms of something that really resonated with you. And then something else is uh, something you've said. In movies, sober women are strong. Their arc is coherent. They start drunk. They struggle. They get sober. But in reality, sober women are the most vulnerable adults. We want to disappear completely. Now we just walk around as ourselves and there's no armor. And that booze, that, excuse my French, fucked up state was, mm. was the armor. What was the process like for you in terms of going through this, going from what was alcohol played a major role in your life to, no, I'm going to get sober. What was that like for you? I think, I mean, the decision came for me after a series of events that I was not proud of and not happy with. And the process of getting sober was really a decision of, I think in life we get to decide am I going to get sicker or am I going to get more well? As far as whatever genetic material we have, whatever our issues are, I do think if you have your faculties, you get the choice. Am I going to get, am I going to get better or not? And I had to look at myself in the mirror and say, no, I want to get better. So the first few months, you really feel like you're walking around with no armor at all. You feel very raw and very vulnerable, which is who that state is who I based the Nikki character. So in my film, I play twins. One is named Nikki. She's very confrontational. She's very chaotic. She's like a raw nerve. And I knew exactly how to tap into those feelings because I had experienced that in my earliest moments of, of sobriety. You know, one of the motivating thoughts for me to get sober was, do you want to look at your life and see everything that you've, excuse my French, fucked up when it's too late? How, how sad is that? Or do you want to get, do you want to have a say in, okay, I fucked up these parts, but it's not too late. And I can sort of change the narrative and I can rewrite my story. Similar to, you know, I wanted to take control of my career. I decided, no, I want to take control of my, my spiritual life. Um, and I'm not, I'm not um, private about the fact that I am in a 12-step program. And I find that to be incredibly helpful. Um, I'm not the most dedicated member or a perfect member, except that I still haven't drank. Um, so I do think that if I didn't have a community of support and my brother who is seven years sober and, you know, is the bravest person I know, I don't know that I would have gotten through this journey alone, which I think again, just points to how important community is. Incredibly. This is not about me, but in May of 2023, I'll be five years sober. Wow. Amazing. And the first meeting that I ever went to, I clutched my dad's medallions and took with me his 12-step book. And I kind of felt like he was there with me in that form, helping me to get strong and helping me to get sober. Yes. And it was pretty incredible opening the 12-step book, which I honestly had never opened. It was like I inherited it from him when he passed away. But there is his handwritten notes 
and you feel like, I can do this. I can do this. And from what I've read, Katie, you felt like before getting sober, you lost your specialness. Can you talk about that a teeny bit? Yeah, I felt like I was just dying a soul death every day. And I felt that... I think I think what makes you who you are is not I think what makes you who you are is are the parts of you that you're trying to numb out if you're drinking heavily. Um so I was I lost sort of my world was getting very small and I lost my ability to connect with people without drinking. I lost my ability to be curious about the world in the way that I am now. I lost a confidence in myself that I think I've gained through knowing that I could quit drinking. And what you say about your father, my father is over 50 years sober. So I also think I had to, maybe you did the same thing and and congratulations on your five years. That's incredible. Um, You know, you look at your genes and you think, how long can I outrun these? Like it's, you're made of what you're made of. So make the best of it you know? And I do think people have a lot of opinions and ideas about the 12-step program. And the only thing that I would say to anyone listening who might think like, oh, the God stuff is weird, or I went to a few meetings for X, Y, or Z, and it didn't really work for me. It's it's not designed to be a perfect program to work for you. It's designed to be a program to help people. And what I had to ask myself anytime I felt frustrations with the 12-step program was, how many people have I helped in my life? nowhere near the amount of people that the 12-step program has helped. So I think it's important to show it some respect and some reverence, whether you understand all of it or not. Agreed. And that's a great way to look at it. That's a very enlightened way to look at it. As I know myself, I I, I would get, you know, you, go, you guys go to that room. You guys are the newbie 12-step people, and you're going to do like chapter one tonight. But as I graduated into other rooms, I, I was like, I'm not sure I'm really buying this. But to your point, there are, there are gems, there are nuggets within there that are, that are so valuable. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's take what works and leave the rest. And that's sort of how we all have to look at life, I think. Absolutely. You know, it's a metaphor for, okay, I'll take this part of this experience worked for me. I'll leave the rest. And so for me... I I don't think it's fair to expect anything to be perfect or a perfect program, but I can say that the support that I found within that community and the bravery that I witness anytime I go to a meeting, it's unmatched. Agreed. Amazing. Um, Jailbreak lovers. Can we talk about that? Because you had me at jail. Yeah. (laughs) I was kind of always a freak of, prison films and Escape from Alcatraz. And I'm like, okay, she's doing something about Jailbreak Leverus. Did it debut just this past July? It did, yes. It debuted on the Lifetime Network this past July. So could you tell our audience what it's about and how can they find it, consume it, and love it? Yeah, so it's based on a true story. Um, A woman named Toby Doerr worked at a prison dog rescue program. Um, She was unhappy in her life and unfulfilled in her marriage. And she found this charity as a way to sort of find herself again. And while she was working in the jail, she fell in love with one of the inmates and she broke him out in a dog crate. And what happens after that is a 
Bonnie and Clyde style romance that's sort of in the tone of I, Tanya. Um, you can find it, I believe, on any Lifetime platform or the W Network in Canada. Uh, I really enjoyed directing that. And that took a certain amount of, uh, I, I had to go into that with behaving as if I had more confidence than I did, because it was the first thing that I had directed that I had not written and that I was not acting in and that I didn't have my regular team of people, like for example, my mother around me while I was making. So that is, that film is a real sort of marker in my career and my personal life of this is some, this is a job someone else gave me. I didn't hire myself to direct this. And the buck really stopped with me. So that was, um, you know, I think you get older and you mature in your career and it's just a series of experiences where you think, can I do this? I don't know, let's see. (laughs) And each time that you are able to, I think you enter the next situation with more confidence. And and so how did you and this becoming the director of this film, how did that happen? Have you got an agent out there looking for opportunities for you to work as a director? Or is it the community that's networking and finding each other for the right things? You know, I think it's a combination of all of those things. Um, I do have agents and managers, and they're always working hard to find me jobs. Um, but I also think the more you sort of immerse yourself in the community, the more that you personally do reach out. Um, Again, because I wanted and want agency in my life, I am very proactive in my career is I'll reach out to anyone I think might have a job that's interesting and say, hey, here's my bio. Here's what I'm up to. Here's the selection of my work. I would love to talk. Um, So that is advice that I would give to sort of any young creative or any creative who's listening is that I feel oftentimes we wait to be approached, but it's like any other business. It's, it's your job to approach as well. And with confidence and humility, like I would really love to find a way to work together. Good for you. I think back to your power suit and your meeting when you were eight years old with, with, with your new agent and no, I don't take no for an answer. And so good for you. That's, that's the attitude that has to be pervasive in order for you to break through. Yeah. I mean, I think we are who we are when we're children, you know, and I I can't say I look at myself and think I'm really that different. (laughs) I think you're so right. Yeah. I think you're so right. There's the learning is we are who we are when we were kids. And so if you can go back to that, there's a lot of insights in there, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I mean, I can tell in speaking to you, you know, you're a an, a spiritual person, you're a seeker as well. Um, and I think the more sort of seeking you do, or the more that you're willing to tap into that realm, or just ask yourself those kinds of questions, the more you realize like, yeah, my, who I am on the inside, my, my core or my heart or whatever, that doesn't change. I just lose touch with her sometimes. That's a great way of putting it. I admit that I had to look up what is the definition of a personal essay. So now we're jumping into bucket of Katie Bolin, the writer. Yes. So I actually have my notes as actor, actress, director, writer, and there's probably other things you're doing, but at least for me on the buckets on the wall, I'm I'm going to writer. Personal essay is an essay, a short work of autobiographical nonfiction, characterized by a sense of intimacy and conversational manner. I thought that's what it was when I heard the word personal essay, but I wasn't sure. You know, talk to us about that writing, which is not screenwriting. This is something different again. 
Yeah. So when people ask, what's your favorite thing that you do, or what's your favorite kind of writing that you do? My answer is always personal essays. Um, For me, there is a a spiritual connection to when and why I write them. I'll feel called to write them. So I'll have an experience Mm -hmm. and I'll think, okay, this is something that I actually have something to say about and that I would like to write about. Um, So for example, getting sober, uh, going on antidepressants, these were things that I felt like I have something to say here and and I would like to share it. Um, That is definitely, I feel vulnerable when any of my work goes out into the world, when anyone I love watches anything I've done or when, when people read, but I feel there's a particular vulnerability when it's a personal essay because it is it is just you and just your thoughts and just your life experiences. And thus far, I've been, um, I would say, quite candid about mistakes I've made and uh, experiences that I've been through. Um, I don't regret any of it now, but I would say <laughs> you can Google me and find out a lot about me <laughs> very quickly. But 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 it's... I don't like the word raw. It touched me like, I think you're going to need stitches as the opening line for the fall. Yeah. You had me there. I mean, you had me there. There's so many people I think could relate and do relate to that. How do you put those, how do you put those personal essays out into the world? Is it via your website or do you send them out to various publications? How does that work? I send them to publications. Um, I sort of have one and I and usually have an idea in mind. So I knew I wanted to, so my essay about quitting drinking is called The Fall and it starts with the event that really motivated me to quit drinking, which is I fell <laughs> and I had to get three stitches in my chin. Um, and I knew I wanted to publish it on a particular sobriety uh, resource website called The Monument. Um, so it took a while of reaching out to them. And then finally they wrote back and they said, yeah, we would like to publish this, which I was just thrilled by. Um, I'm considering now I want to write a column called All the Mistakes I've Made um, because I've you could frame them two ways. I've certainly made some mistakes, but I've also learned a lot of lessons from each mistake. So, you know, I got married when I was 21. That was a mistake. But I think that there's a lesson and sort of a story in there. Um, so now I'm sort of approaching a uh, a period in my life when I might write a lot more and, a, and much more confessionally. Um, and I feel excited and, and daunted by that challenge. But when I have that feeling, that's when I know okay, it's time to be brave because this is something that you, you're probably meant to do. And the world needs that. The world craves that. And I think the more, my personal view, the more you put yourself out there like that, the more that other people will also be okay with putting themselves out there like that. So when you say a column, Katie, is it like for a newspaper I think it would probably be for an online publication, but I'm still okay. trying to figure out exactly where the right place for it to land would be. And also what is the way to sort of prove to a a larger online publication that I would have a platform or that I deserve this opportunity. So mm. there's also a lot of discussions about like how to, what, what kind of a thing could I build on social media for it? Or do I start making TikTok videos? All of which seems like a nightmare to me, but it's a new world. <laughs> 
that we live in, you know? And I, there is also a certain amount of consideration where I'm personally extremely comfortable with putting a lot of out there artistically. You do have to also think about the people that you love and that are in your life and the people that you have loved that may not be in your life anymore and how much are you willing to expose about them. And that's sort of a constant debate that I have in my own head. Half of me thinks like what Nora Ephron said, everything is copy. Another half of me thinks that people deserve privacy, you know? So I, I go back and forth a lot on how much I'm, I should be willing to share about others. Do you think that there's a connection between bravery and adversity? Absolutely. I don't think you know how brave you really are until you've faced adversity. I don't, I think that you can be brave without having faced a lot of adversary, adversity, but I don't think that you really have to confront it or that you're really in the depths of it uh, until you're really called upon to be brave. And you think, I'm, I'm not, I can't do this. The bravest moments, I mean, I, I remember talking to your producer, Rebecca, this summer in New York, and I was going through um, a difficult time personally. And she said what she had learned from producing this podcast is that the people are, people are the bravest when they think that they're not being brave at all or that they're not capable of being brave at all. Um, and I really held that and I really took that with me through that difficult time. And it really encouraged me and also allowed me to be brave in moments when I felt the weakest I'd ever been. Fabulous. It almost is, it shows you what's deep down in you. Because you don't have time to think about it usually. You just you just run into the fire, as one of the guests said, without really considering it. So there's that, is it stupidity or is it bravery? But it's instinct. And I think it's one of those, you know, you can't overthink that thing. You just run. Why do you think that sharing some of your mistakes with the world is a calling for you at this point, Katie? I think because I'm at a place now, I'm 34, I'm turning 35, um, where I've been through my 20s, which were incredible, rocky, challenging. And I think I have something to share with women younger than me and around my age, because I think I now have sort of arrived at a new let's say, vista or a new perspective where I'm seeing things a little differently. And I wish that I could talk to my younger self and tell her some of this stuff. So I guess also because I was a huge fan of Ask Polly and Dear Sugar and all those amazing advice columns where women spoke very can with a lot of candor about their life and their mistakes. And I just, I didn't feel like there was one for uh, women my age are a little younger. So I think that's why. And also because recently I've been through some personal life change and it's just given me a lot of, a lot of time to think and reflect and also some perspective that, you know, if, what is the point of having gone through it if I can't maybe help somebody? I hope you do it. I'm older than you, so I'm not the demographic you're talking to, but my daughter is. And, and I agree with you that, Doing that would be a huge gift to the world, to yourself and to the world, I believe. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably selfishly motivated. It's more for me that I want to sort of work through this stuff and talk about it and understand it, you know, through writing it. Um, but I do feel sometimes uh, like working in film is incredible. I'm very lucky. Sometimes I wonder, like, it's so removed from actually helping people or doing something tangible that you feel like, 
uh, I went through this. Here you go. Take what you can from this, you know, take, take what works from my experience and leave the rest that I wanted to have a more immediate way of doing that. And that's sort of what the personal essays allow me to do. Fantastic. So, so what are you working on now? What's on the horizon for you in terms of what's in the hopper for you right now, Katie? Um, I guess I have a lot going on. Um, I am directing an episode of Murdoch Mysteries right now, um, which we finish later this month. Uh, I'm my second feature film is has been financed, so I will be writing and, and directing that at some point in 2023. Uh, I have a lot of television series that I've created that are in development. And I'm actually, um, with a friend, I am developing a podcast about women's health and how women's bodies are the greatest uh, secret network in the world and how little we know about ourselves and how little the medical community knows about our bodies and sort of how we all figure this out together. Um, It's a little bit propelled by rage, but also curiosity. so I have, I have a lot that I'm that I'm currently working on. Oh my god! Yes, and good for you. Thanks. Tell me, tell me where, tell me what happened that the rage came into it in terms of women's bodies and female health issues. Is it you know running around and hitting walls with people who just don't get it? It's definitely partially that. It's also. Um, I just personally came up against some particularly female health issues. Like I am, I have uh, something called PMDD, which just means really bad PMS. <laughs> and there's no research done on it. There's no real cure. And I thought, I know many women who suffer from the same condition or who suffer just from PMS in general or menopause is very difficult. All of these hormonal changes that we go through in our lives. Where is the research? Where's the information? Where's a doctor? Why am I, re- why am I going to Reddit boards for information? Uh, why are we whispering to each other like, you know, I tried this and this helped. Um, so that, that sort of made me, once I started really thinking about that, that made me angry. Um, and I think ultimately no one really cares about female pain or the female medical experience. Most medical testing, if not all until 30 years ago was done on men's bodies. Uh, female cancers aren't studied as largely Alzheimer's is a largely female disease. We don't know why we think it's hormonally linked. No one's studying it. 50% of the world has a clitoris. No one's ever studied it. So it's all of these things that sort of make me mad and think, what if we had a platform where we could talk about it, where there were experts, where there were women sharing their stories? Um, So that's still sort of been in in incubation period, but I really look forward to it moving forward because I think that's also something I can put out into the world that might tangibly help people. I'm a listener already. Is this going to be your podcast? (laughs) Uh, Yes, I'm doing it with a friend who um, I can't announce who yet, but she's she's amazing. And I think it'll be, it'll be funny and sad and all of the above. Wow. Well, keep us posted on that, please, because... I will. Yes. Yes and yes. Is there ever a need for such information? And the idea of whispering to each other is, feels like there's something interesting and creative in the word there whispering to each other. Wow. Yeah, because we're taught also to be ashamed of our bodies. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And that you only really talk to other women about it and your doctor's probably a man and what does he know? And 
So I'm glad that you like the idea because I'm fired up about it too. (laughs) I love the idea. I think it's fantastic. Can I jump back for a second to- Absolutely. The other thing that you're, the other 27,000 things you're working on, but writing and directing and producing your own feature film. Are we, does it have a name? Are we allowed to know what that is? Yeah, so it's called The Funeral Play. Um, I optioned my, one of my best friend's uh, grandfather's rights to his story. He put on, while he was still alive, a play that memorialized his life in his own words. And he made all of his family members, ex-wives, children, sisters, various degrees of of, um, closeness within the family perform the play and none of them were actors or had really any interest in performing at all. So I just, I was so tickled by this idea and I thought there was so much room to grow just from the seed of that story. Um, So I sort of think of it like a Royal Tenenbaums meets Birdman um, with a and I'm very excited to to write it and to make it next year. Wow. And if all goes according to plan, which life never does, when no. would it be when would it potentially be available for the big world to enjoy consume? I would say realistically 2024. Excellent. Yeah. Um I would love to chat with you about something that I found not to be too morbid on this, but it was it was fascinating to me to tie this together. Excuse my French in advance. Bukowski called getting fucked up how I did safe suicide. Suicide is why I drank and why I did it. It was always wanting to die and be reborn just for a little while. That idea of blackout, gone to be reborn. And the fact that that is a human condition and that distinguishes us from animals because a dog can't or doesn't want to black out, but that human consciousness demands an escape. Can I, I, that's the part that I'd like to dive on. Human consciousness demands an escape. Can, can you just give me your thoughts on that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, when I wrote that, um, you know, I thought about why did I want to drink to the point that I was blacked out? Why did I want to drink to the point that I just was not there anymore? Certainly there were times when it was just fun and I was young, but it progressed to a place where that was not the case. So I had to come to terms with the fact that it meant that I just didn't really want to be there for certain hours. I wanted to be gone. I wanted to not be conscious. I wanted to not have to think as myself. I wanted to escape my own brain, you know? Um, So I think depending on your psychology, but particularly I'll talk about mine, it's, um, you know, it's complex. And that's the challenge. And you know, Marilyn, of being sober is that you cannot change the channel on your brain. You are stuck in your consciousness and there is no escape. And now on the one hand, that's like the greatest gift of my life. On the other hand, that can be challenging, particularly if you have a brain that doesn't shut off, if you're a person who has a lot of ideas, if you're a person who is emotional and has a lot of feelings. But there's always, you know, there is the, I think it's called, there's the problem of consciousness. 
And you identify or you tend to, if you haven't done, you know, meditation work or if you're not sort of in certain spiritual circles or if you're not talking about this, you identify with every thought you have, right? But the reality is, is like my thoughts are just my thoughts. My identity, who I am, that's the part, that's the soul, that's the heart, that's who I was as a child, that's who we were talking about earlier. So in getting sober, I really had to put distance between all of my thoughts and who I actually am and try not to identify so much with my brain that just was worrying, worrying, worrying all the time. And that might be the wisest thing I've ever heard about sobriety. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Seriously. That separation of who you are and what's going on in your head and how the more connected those things are, the more you need something in the form of a substance to shut it down. Yeah. So what does bravery mean to you, Katie? I've got a couple of questions up here on the wall. What does, what does bravery mean to you? Just, just shoot from the hip on that answer. I think for me, I think bravery is different for every person. But for me, when I'm being brave, it means I'm having the difficult conversations I'm trying to avoid. And it means that I'm willing to look at situations in my life, honestly, and assess truthfully where things are, what's working and and what isn't. And I have spent a lot of time in my life trying to avoid those difficult conversations, but I know I'm being brave when I'm willing to have them. Thank you. We have a whole bunch of double-digit episodes of Breaking Brave in the Can now that have been released, and everybody has a different answer, and everybody's answer is brilliant. And if you could say, if you could say one thing, and I'm going to say women, for women out there who are trying to get sober, listening to this and thinking, oh, I've tried and failed, I've tried and failed, or maybe I've never tried at all. What would you say to those women who are maybe battling with sobriety of any description or thinking about it, at least? I would say it's better on the other side. I would say you're going to do yourself a huge favor if you have some um, psychological or psychiatric help to address what underlying issues might be there that you don't know about, because often alcoholism is symptomatic of something else. Um, I would say there is always, there is a seat for you at an AA meeting. You will find the right one. You will find your community. Do not give up if it doesn't speak to you at first. Uh, And if AA isn't for you, find a sober community. And I will say, listen, honey, you don't have a choice. So you can keep living like this forever or You can look at your genes and what you're made of, and you can say, this is what I've got, so how do I make the best of it? Excellent. Thank you. That'll help a lot of people. I know it will. So, Katie, how can we we find you? How can we support you? How can we consume your beautiful work, be that in film or writing? Please let the world know how best to connect with you and enjoy you and appreciate you. That's so kind, Marilyn. Thank you for asking. Um, uh, My website has links to all my work. So that's www.katieboland.com. And I'm pretty active on Instagram. And my handle is katieboland13. Fantastic. And where can we watch your directorial debut, meaning we're all in this together? Um, if you're in Canada, it is available on all sort of video on demand platforms, but you can, you can rent it or buy it on Apple. It has been an absolute delight and thank you for everything you're giving the world. And please 
keep us posted on your podcast about women's health and everything that you're working on, because I know I personally, and I'm sure the audience out there, wants more Katie Bolin in their life. Oh, that's really sweet. And thank you. I will definitely keep you posted. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Marilyn. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.